0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of being a grown-up.
0: Hi, I'm
1: Annabelle. (laughs) Don't know why you're laughing,
0: Emily. Hi. Stop laughing, Emily. so cheerful oppressively cheerful
1: I mean I'm back to being cheerful again
0: oh dear sorry guys I
1: don't know if I liked you the other way
0: hi I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine but I went to a very nice wedding on Saturday a very nice happy thing and there is nothing like a very nice wedding if you are a little bit other and you are not 2.2 And, you know, you're on your own, you've got some complicated stuff going on. There is nothing like a very nice wedding to make you feel like a freak in an incredibly unfun way. So I got through it and I was a little bit marvellous because I felt that I had to be because I was a little bit other. So therefore you have to there be more fun and more interested and interesting than anybody else. And I've been in a sort of state of collapse ever since and feeling rather bereft, actually. Also, I wore heels for six hours for the first time in two years. And it's gone straight into my back because I'm Um, 150. How are you,
1: Well, I feel a little bit shallow after that, but anyway, um, I'm absolutely fine, and I'm also feeling 150. And the reason is is because I was away for the weekend, and I didn't bring my own pillow. <laughs> and actually, I looked at my pillow and went, "Shall I bring you?" And I thought, "No, come on, come on, we're not there yet. We are. We are." We are there. You never leaving the house again. Without my pillow. Fucking hell, I might even just take it on the tube from now on because I now even just look at another pillow and I am Well, what pillow leg. were you confronted with? Sort of a thin sort of Airbnb pillow. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, anyway, so, I mean, I agree it's really low-level stuff. So let's get down to business. Some resets you plan, some ambush you. But what happens when you're 47, you get divorced, you lose your house, you lose your dog, and you get an unexpected diagnosis? Maybe you spend the next few years in a darkened room or maybe if you are writer and columnist Stacey Duguid, you look life right in the eye and decide you want to embrace the second half with, as she puts it, the kind of high level enthusiasm you might find on centre court during the finals. And that includes dating, a lot of dating, but you also spend a hell of a lot of the time in that darkened room. She's here today to talk about how she coped when the universe decided to reset almost every area of her life. Stacey, how are you?
2: Absolutely fine, but well yesterday my kids who are 8 and 10 were rummaging around in my bathroom and they found my vibrator.
0: Oh my god. (laughs) It's
2: the new one by Lily Allen, bless her. Love you Lily Allen, big shout out to you for manufacturing what can only be the nicest clitoris stimulator made on the planet <laughs> <laughs> including
0: never mind. So, including all men, all men, she was about, I to, was about to say. <laughs> all men. You know, men yeah.
2: <laughs> Gosh, I'm not anti-men. I love men.
0: We can so, be anti-men for five minutes.
2: And they said, Oh what's this mum? And I said, Oh, it's
0: for facials.
2: And so <laughs> on a Sunday afternoon I had to sit through having a facial with my vibrator clit-sucking vibrator, sucking my cheeks and my nose for about half an hour.
0: <laughs> and how did your face look? Yeah, I was
1: about to Do you say, know what? surely that's what we ought to
2: revived and <laughs> plumper. Definitely,
1: uh, my face was a little bit sweaty after that. But um, apart from that, I'm absolutely fine. <laughs> oh my God, it's so lovely to have you here today. That's a brilliant, refreshing, invigorating start. It's been quite a year for you, hasn't it? So quite a year been quite a
0: two years yeah so if we rewind because you're a very famous fashion editor and stylist um, you I think I'm right in saying came back from Milan Fashion Week last February and is that sort of when it all kicked off for you
2: it had kicked off a year prior when my ex and I realized that actually uh, we you know we got married quite late oh, we, we, our kids were born our, I think Martha was about 5, that means Nathaniel's 7, and we've been together 10 years in total, but we, we decided to get married for some reason. I know why, because of Brexit, because we had this idea that he's American, he has an American passport, that we might bugger off to America, but then Trump got in, so that was all sort of, you know, sidelined. But the idea to get married sort of originated from that, you know, sitting in that post-Brexit malaise, thinking, oh my gosh, we've got to get out of here. So it wasn't the most romantic start to a marriage. The proposal was, and I quote, unquote, he was sitting on the edge of the bed wearing his scruffy boxer shorts, hair on five o'clock in the morning. I hadn't slept because I've been on Twitter calling everyone C.U.N.D." And (laughs) uh, he said, he looked at his foot and he said, well, I suppose we should get married. And I said, excuse me, was that the proposal? Are you having a laugh? That was it. And it sort of, went from there, you know, and we got married. And did that set the tone for it the marriage? It set the tone, of, but the <laughs> best it was, the best it was, two weeks later, he said, are you serious about this, getting married? I went, well, come on, let's just do it. Might as well, I'm in my 40s, we've got two kids, we've got this amazing house we've built together. I suppose you want a ring. What? You suppose I want a ring? You're damn right <laughs> I want a ring. So anyway, a week later, he said, well, I've had a chat with Blah, a friend of his from boarding school who's a jeweler, and he said, uh, he has some surplus stock. That oh. was the point at which I think... If anything's
0: going to make you feel like surplus stock, right? it's that. I, it's like, yeah. I'm, I now feel like a fucking consolation surplus prize. Surplus
2: stock, fuck off. So I said, please, can I have his number? I will
0: deal with this. So <laughs> I dealt with it.
2: And um, obviously the budget was blown through the roof and whatever. Anyway, it, w- it was a really great friendship. And towards the end, it was a friendship. And I wanted something different from my life. You know, what you flash forward and you think, well, what would the 60 year old, it sounds like a cliche, but what would the 60 year old me be telling me now? Would she say that this is just okay? It's okay just to feel okay in your marriage? Or would she say, do you know what? There's a whole life to, out there to live and perhaps you should just get out there and do it. Which is scarier, staying in the marriage or leaving the marriage? Two years on, I can definitely confirm that it is scarier leaving the marriage. It is much easier to stay in it. But I am assured that this this will pass. So, what happened? Well, this feeling that it wasn't working. And so, we went to couples therapy and we really worked it through and I'm proud of us for doing that because I can lie in bed at three o'clock in the morning, which I often do, and think, did I do enough? And the answer is, well, we had therapy for a year we tried we fought for it and it didn't work and then I did you're right I flew off to Milan in February 2020 we decided to tell the children that we were splitting up running returned from Paris actually which which was the kind of middle of March and when I was in Milan you know the city was shutting down I could see this Covid pandemic unfolding before my eyes I mean the reason I knew it was really serious was when when I knew that COVID was really serious was when I turned up to the Dolce Gabbana show and it started on time. And I thought, <laughs> this is a global disaster. Like, never before has the Dolce Gabbana show started on time. And I was trying to reason with the security guard. I said, but what do you mean? It's two o'clock. It's finito, it's finito. Anyway, it turns out that, of course, it turns out that the city was closing down. We went to the airport. There were babies in masks. There were people running around. It was dystopian, yeah like call Matt McCarthy is the road like I was like what's going on here and then I land in London like nothing's happened and then I uh, zip off on the Eurostar the following day to do a project with Dior in Paris and three days into Paris Fashion Week the same thing happens there I return to London and the same thing again is as if nothing had happened I go into my office I actually had COVID and that's how the. I mean let's not get on to COVID because that's a whole other podcast but it was shocking to me to discover, to go from two European, major European cities and land in London and for it to seem completely normal. Anyway, having seen that, I'd taken a rental opposite my kids' school and I quickly realised, actually, this is really serious. So I um, reneged on the rental. I stayed in the family home. We decided to lock down together. And I know that one of the biggest questions people ask me is, why did you leave the family home? And it's a really, mm. it's a big question. It's a question I ask myself regularly. But one of us had to move out and I was the only one willing to do it. And so I found a new home via a video recording by an estate agent um, and I hadn't actually seen it. And I got the keys on the 3rd of July. And when I walked in to that house, really that's when everything crumbled for me. Brady,
0: what were you confronted with? Cracked in. The price really? was high.
2: It looked lovely on the video. It looked lovely on the website, and I know the website photos were at least ten years old. Um, the floorboards were cracked. The bathroom tiles were cracked and broken. The roller blinds on the windows were were ripped off and thrown on the floor. It was dirty. It was smelly. The oven didn't work. It was thick with grease. The fridge was about twenty five years old. The garden was overgrown. There was just an, a rubbish old sofa in the middle of the room it hadn't been painted in god knows how long wires hanging out of sockets I mean it was unbelievable and I had my daughter with me oh and it was also, horrific
1: because also you've kind of you've got yourself to this point right you've gone through all the different steps to leave this is your you have making the decision and then suddenly you're like and this is where my choice has led me and that must have been horrific.
2: Well, I felt ashamed. I felt stupid and ashamed. I felt like it had been an impulsive decision. But it hadn't been. The previous tenant popped by one day to pick up a parcel. And he said, how's it going here? And I said, oh, it's been difficult. She said, yeah, very difficult. The day agent doesn't listen and the landlady doesn't listen. And she said, we stayed here six months because we were locked down here. And she said, my husband was so stressed. He had a stroke. And I said, Oh, she said, yes, in that bedroom up there. She pointed to my bedroom oh. and I was literally like, oh, bloody hell. I mean, the plot thickens. So the poor man had had a stroke. It was so stressful in, in this house. I mean, nothing worked in the house. The windows didn't open, you know. Anyway, it was horrible.
0: And you're working at this point. You're separating. I'm separating. Um, I'm working full time. We had a different so what... custodial uh, arrangement at the time. So
2: I think what I did was because I felt so guilty about leaving, I sort of went along with what he wanted. So for example, he wanted four days on, three days off alternate. And that meant that I was in this crappy house on my own for four days straight, having moved from our house that we built together, which was my home. You know, when you have your home taken away from you and it wasn't taken away from me because I'd walked away from yeah. it. So, it but still, when you don't have your home, you forget how destabilizing, I had no clue how destabilizing that was going to be. I hadn't thought it through. So I'm in my I'm in this crappy rental. I don't have my children. I can't sleep, I can't eat. And I, I look back and I remember calling my doctor and she said, we're going to get you signed off sick. And I remember I had the sick note in my hand, not in my hand physically, but on my phone. And I thought I should just send this to HR And legally, they now need to just sign me off for two weeks and I didn't do it because I'm from a generation where we don't do it. We don't speak up when we're not feeling well. We don't speak up when we just keep on going. And I don't know what that is. It's like a self-punishment.
0: But also, it's not like you could have taken um, two weeks to, to seek some solace and some rest in calm and relaxing surroundings. You would have had to sit in this stroke bedroom uh, with where the windows don't open in high summer, in lockdown, by yourself. And I'm not sure if that would have been very healing, even if you had managed to actually, you know, take the letter to HR.
1: And you're, you're right as well. I mean, when I was working for a big company and I started hearing voices and having, like, chronic panic attacks, when I finally admitted to my line manager this was happening, I took the afternoon off, went to the doctor the next day, and then I was back at work. And it was... I don't, I mean, I I don't even know if they would have asked that of me. I just didn't feel in any way that that was not an option. I realized now that
2: I did have a breakdown and I was walking down Knightsbridge and I know I had a breakdown because I was wearing Manolo heels with jewels on in the middle of the day, very high heels, I could barely walk in. I was dolled up to the nines, necklace on, Regina Pio, amazing fabulous outfit, massive sunglasses, walking down Knightsbridge and I thought, I actually don't think I'm here, but if I called an ambulance now, I would die looking fabulous and I, I would actually just want someone to tuck me up into bed and just disappear. And I look back at that time and I think, how the fuck did I go into work? Okay, I, so fashion has always been my armour and actually that's one important thing about the fashion industry for me and what fashion gives to me. It provides me with a kind sort of alternative personality behind which or thanks to, I can be anyone. So that moment I switched on the glamour because it's all I had to get me through. And the more sicker I got, the more dressed up I became. <laughs> anyway, the healing began, if we can call it a healing, because it's been up and down, but when I moved into this new place, and like, as, as you said, when you don't have your children and you're lying in a room that the windows are open and there's mouse droppings under the floorboards that you can't clean, and nothing works well here i walked in and i it was just an intense sigh of relief it was more expensive but i moved in here on the 17th of december and everything started to get better from there on in but i then when i was it was almost as if my brain your brain can only cope with so much stress and i put myself through so much last year
0: It starts to short circuit, doesn't it? It starts to misbehave and do strange things, which are, you know, that's when I think that's, you know, when people talk about you acting out of character. Mm. I think often it's when some electrical signups in your brain just goes, "No, no, 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 I'm shot.
2: What was amazing was actually around September, October time. I was so sick of living this hashtag handbag life on Instagram. I'm fabulous. My outfits are fabulous. I have a fabulous job. My mates are all glamorous. Look at me. It was bullshit. And so I decided to turn off that lens and speak my truth. Okay, fine with a nice picture. Still being, you know, fashionable and loving clothes the way that I do and nice things, but actually saying, do you know what? I'm getting divorced. Life has been shit. And it was then that I started to have a proper engagement with people. Every time I post something, I have hundreds of direct messages that I reply to everyone. From women who are really going through it, women who have had an absolute shit show during lockdown, awful, awful things happen to them. And I've built up this like little community of women now who, I mean, we exchange numbers, we WhatsApp each other. I've never met them. How are you today? Have you sliced the top of your finger off today? Is everything okay? <laughs> I mean, one woman sliced the top of a finger off, uh, fell down the stairs in a heap. I got up and was like, I'm absolutely fine. I'm absolutely <laughs> fine, does anybody want their dinner? You know, so she's like these women just getting through this like single mothers, having to go through so much during lockdown. And actually we've become like a support group to one another. Mm. I think there's a transformation period that happens to women in the midlife. And I think we we begin to discover who we are, our authentic voice, and what it is we want for the next chapter.
0: Dating, okay. so they wanted you to write about dating because you were dating.
2: Well, I started writing about dating in January because yeah. you know, we were coming out of a, a lockdown. I, I went on dating apps and it was, an, it was so funny. <laughs> and I started writing
0: about it and it was just brilliant. And that's when I was offered a column. What have, what have been your sort of standout, funny experiences since you started dating? Oh, my God.
2: I mean, I really, really like it when men write shows your tits. That's
0: really good. (laughs) It's always witty, that, isn't it? Really
1: witty. Um, Witty and probably
0: is actually heartfelt.
1: Incredibly poetic. (laughs) It's definitely their authentic voice. A city guy who'd um, been to Brazil and had taken a tantric sex
2: course. And so ever since I I went on a date, my first date was with someone who said he was 45 and he was actually like 70. (laughs) <laughs> so I decided to, I have to meet them like either on FaceTime or Zoom or whatever. So I met this guy on Zoom and he was topless and wearing yo- like baggy yoga pants. he like the ones you get in Thailand for three quid in the market. Yeah, yeah. Loose to the crotch. 6 pm. That's an unforgivable outfit as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and uh, he was in a yoga pose and he said, he, was, he immediately started talking about sexual kind of positions. And, and I said, he says, what's your favourite sexual position? And I said, well, right now it's the one where I close my laptop and lie down on the floor. And, and so I disappeared off. And I was like, I'm, this is madness. No thanks. I mean, he was this kind of nice, seemingly together middle class city boy. Mm. Taking one course in tantric sex and off he goes.
1: Um,
2: <laughs> oh, a really good one was when I went on a date with a guy who was a lawyer, but for a music company. I thought, okay, that's quite cool. Um, met him, I was going to take him to the electric in Portobello. I went for a facial first with uh, Teresa Tame. And she's a friend and she, and I don't really go for facials, but she did this thing on my face, which was like, needled it. And so I was really, really, really red and had no makeup on. I was like, oh my God, look at my face. So I went to meet him in a pub and he, I sat down and he was the most boring person I've ever met. <laughs> and, uh, and I would run out of conversation and then my face did look weird. And I said, I'm sorry, my face looks weird. He was like, yeah, well, it's a bit red. And i well, I've just had a facial. He's like, "All oh, right." And he said, okay, well, uh, where do you like to go on holiday? And I said, well, I like to go to Ibiza. He's like, childish. And I said, well, what do you like to do? And he said, um, play golf. I was like, oh. oh. I said, like, oh, my God, you're so boring. I said, you know what? <laughs> I said, I'm going to go now. And he was like, you
1: know what? Why, where, why don't you just grow up?
2: He said. <gasps> and I turned around, I went, no. I will. I don't fancy <laughs> No.
1: But also, Never. there's so many things. But also, after all, everything you're going through and how much growing up you're, you're doing, you really don't need well, a lawyer for a music company who plays golf to tell you like, I, how to live, right? I wrote
2: that, actually. My post was like, you know what? I couldn't be more grown up right now. I'm financially finding my feet, which is a whole other podcast, <laughs> single parent a rental thinking, shit, I've worked for 20 years. And I don't really have anything to show for it.
0: But back to, back to the really important stuff. Wasn't there a Frenchman? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, he's upstairs. <laughs> a, a younger Frenchman.
2: Yeah, yeah. I and mean, that's why, you know, got girls like, I've got to hurry this along. He's only going to be here for another couple
0: of hours. Yeah, she's, <laughs> he's 13 years younger. So that side of life is going rather well. Yes. Are you having fun? People say, date, have fun. And I always think, how is that possible? It's incredibly traumatic. But it sounds like you're having fun. Well, I think because there's so much
2: sort of I've had so much trauma in the last year. I, You know, there's a thing where I did think it was a cliche that middle aged women do have better sex. But it is, in my case, true, because I am more body confident. I just feel I have so much less to lose. I'm less invested in a way because, well, when I was in my 30s having sex, I wanted to, have, I wanted to meet someone. I wanted to have babies with someone. I was looking for a partner to have children with. I was also very neurotic in my 30s, and I am more self-assured and self-aware, and I have also had a lot of therapy, a shitload of therapy, three years of therapy. I go every week religiously, um, and I think it all connects. I think there's a lot of growth, and again, a lot of transformation that happens with women in middle age, and I feel happier and more confident in myself, and I'm more sexually active as a result.
0: So what led you to go to the doctor? My therapist.
2: So my therapist of three years who has really gotten through this process because, of course, when I sit there sobbing, I should never have left. She reminds me of all the things we've spoken about for the last three years. She's incredible, very boundaried. It's been difficult and scary, and it's been hard to turn up, and it's hard to turn up every week. Sometimes I send her a WhatsApp saying, I'm really frightened to come this week like I did last week. And she, four weeks ago, suggested that I go and meet with a psychiatrist called um, Dr. Mo Zohar, who works from the Portobello Clinic, to be assessed for bipolar. And I was so shocked, I cried and cried and cried. I got an emergency appointment with him because I was so freaked out by lots of different things that were happening. And actually post this corporate job, I have had a massive decompression and I would say burnout period. When I have looked back and thinking, thought I could have done that better and I should have done that better. Why didn't I cope very well with that? And what is it with me and authority figures? And how come I can't diary plan that, that and that and that? Anyway, so I saw, I had a 90 minute assessment and he said, you're not bipolar, but you are very high scoring ADHD.
0: What does that mean?
2: So the impulsivity, the oversensitivity, the people pleasing, a boss says no to a project. That is rejection and abandonment in an ADHD mind, or certainly in my mind, not generally, but in my mind. It triggers, and I have a full terror breakdown so that may not leave my body for six
0: hours. It can happen with a wrong look. So so one of the symptoms of ADHD for you, certainly, is sort of an inability to manage reactions, having very overblown reactions to very day-to-day things. Yeah. So that is very tiring and very painful.
2: Very tiring and very, very painful. Overblown reactions to friends, text messages. I would have Zoom calls all day long in lockdown, sometimes 12 people in 12 different squares. I was trying to read those 12 different faces all at the same time, and it would blow my mind. And it would make, I'd almost have a panic attack and it made me feel depressed. And eventually I had to turn the computer away from my face because I couldn't possibly understand why, um, I don't know. Let's made-up name Joseph was looking grumpy. Was he grumpy at me? Did I do something wrong? Or was his dog just barking in the background? Why is she smiling? Is she laughing at me? Have I said something wrong? Am I stupid? Am I silly? And in the end, I just couldn't cope with it and I had to turn the screen.
0: So it sounds like it almost pushes you to it, it towards something akin to paranoia. Quite openly to paranoia, upset. In my case, it's a feeling of utter terror. And terror is the
2: feeling that a baby feels when its needs are not being met pre And
0: consistent terror or terror that comes in waves? It's a reaction and a deep feeling. So a strong reaction, but a reaction that sticks for a while. As you said, it will stay in your body and you feel it physically and it's trauma.
1: Trauma triggered. And so when you're actually, I mean, God, Stacey, you must have had a hell of a year because, you know, it's one thing to misread for whatever reason, a Zoom face, which we've all done. And, and I think you know, everybody will will identify with that kind of disconnection and, and, and paranoia that we all feel now that we're unlocked and we say something and you think, oh, my God, like, whatever. But then to actually be undergoing trauma as well, you must have been, I mean, no wonder you are on the floor.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, a lot around impulsivity. How does that play out for you, Well, like I've been very
1: impulsive
2: in my life. You know, when it comes to shopping, it's essentially dopamine. And the medication, which I haven't taken today... Because if I take the medication this and I speak to anyone this early on, it looks like I've done a massive line of coke. I'm almost like I, so wired from it. And the first day I took it, I was like, I did the school run and I thought, I came back and I thought, oh my God, I could do it with a beer. You know, it's <laughs> like you've had a big night
0: out. And um, how did you feel when you when you got the diagnosis? I felt utter relief. Sort of vindication almost. Vindication. I felt utter relief. And then I started
2: reading about it and I I then I felt incredibly sad that I hadn't had this diagnosis in my twenties or thirties.
1: I'm sad for you. Exactly. It's sad for the past you, isn't it? It's sad for the, for the little girl who, you know, was found yeah. school a nightmare. I don't know if you found school a nightmare, but of just having to negotiate all these spaces all the time and come back and think, Oh my God, I, you know, permanently, what have I done and everything? I mean, just yeah. a nightmare.
2: Yeah. sort of concentrate on study, but very hyper focused on certain activities So, for example, I was hyper-focused on painting and art, and that's all I was interested in. There's a kind of a fear factor with the self-esteem is a really big one, so a lack of self-esteem. And I'm very fearful of, it's, it's ironic given I talk about so much of my personal life and how I feel across many platforms, whether it be social media or a national newspaper, and yet A huge fear for me would be, for example, having to do a presentation in the boardroom, you know, and I know that goes across the, uh, it is a general, a general, you know, people have fear about things like that, but I would go into a state of, I'm not good enough, I don't deserve this, I shouldn't even have this job,
0: I'm just going to leave.
2: And I've done that so many times, and I was fearful that I'd done that about my marriage.
0: It's difficult, isn't it? You get a diagnosis, you think, oh my God, thank God. A magic pill. Vindication, but then you're on a whole nother journey. You just, it's not, you, you know, because uh, we're, we're people, we're not mobile phones. You can't just press a button yeah. and all the problem is solved. So now you're at, the, you're, at the, you're at the bottom of the ADHD mountain, really, aren't you?
2: I'm at the bottom of the ADHD mountain, and reading this book has been so helpful, scattered minds. And actually, right at the end, it has some coping mechanisms that I know are already helping. Mm. So, number one, compassion. Be compassionate towards yourself and know because when I get frustrated that, oh, why? I'm so stupid. I've placed three appointments. I don't have anything on my whole day, but the three things I have to do today, I have put them all down in my diary within the same hour <laughs> because I'm stupid and I don't deserve to do this and this and this. And so I'm, I, I'm I've blown it up. I do that all the time. I'm an idiot. So that unhelpful thinking is actually reframed with, do you know what? This is your brain rewired in a slightly different way. Be compassionate. And there's a whole paragraph. So there's a headline in this book, which I'm finding very interesting, this chapter. Compassion and the search for self-insight. And essentially, it's about a bit of self-love and self-parenting and how to do that. Number two, self-acceptance. Tolerating your guilt and anxiety. The big thing with ADHD is a constant sense of guilt. Guilty that you didn't send the thank you card. Why do I never send thank you cards? I just bought a pa- a, an amazing box of beautiful, good quality, gorgeous thank you cards that sit there unsent, and that's actually mentioned in here. You, you know, the, the forgetting of anniversaries, the forgetting of birthdays—a seemingly unthinking, unkind way that you behave towards your friends, which you just you know you're doing, but there's something in this brain fog that doesn't allow you to send that card. And I know that I need to send the card. I don't know why I don't do it. Because... I know that's
0: very weird paralysis. It's just odd. I guess. And then you're, it's, it's, you're sort of locked in. You're thinking, why can't I live the life the way that I intend to? Why can't I yeah. be the person that I am? Why not? Why not?
2: And so this sort of endless sense of guilt and endless sense of shame, which is mentioned throughout this book. It's sort of constant punishing. Number three, don't punish yourself for where you find yourself. That's also really interesting. Like, you know finding myself looking at my diary, three appointments all sheltered in for the same hour. I mean, the other day I was in town on an appointment and my neighbor called and she said, oh, Stacey, I have your Sainsbury's delivery here. I'll put everything in my fridge and freezer. Don't worry, I've got it. Well, how did I do that? I had the Sainsbury's delivery arriving the same time that I was the other side of town. But in my brain, I knew it. I knew I was going into into Oxford Circus, but I also knew Sainsbury's was coming at ten o'clock.
0: <laughs> yeah, so your brain's playing tricks on you, which is maddening. And I think all a lot of this is exacerbated by coming out of lockdown because we did have that, and certain, and, and and even more so for you because you were getting divorced. We did have that constant thrum of anxio- uh, anxiety that made us hypervigilant about things like Sainsbury's orders and you know uh, and, and every, every little thing that happened. we were just always uh, waiting for the world to end, really. And I'm finding now I I don't remember anything because I think I'm slightly less ready for the apocalypse.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, well, I actually didn't manage to order anything in lockdown. I have no (laughs) idea why. I just, it was almost like, oh, I'm in complete denial and paralysis. So I've had the diagnosis. I'm understanding a lot about myself and a lot. It has allowed me some forgiveness. So where I've constantly assumed I'm the one who's completely messed up that job or I've done that or I've lost that friend because of X, I now understand why. And I can actually be more vigilant and, as I said, more compassionate. And I'm working a lot with my therapist on how
0: I can sort of on coping mechanisms going forward. So really, all these things that have happened to you at 46, 47 are paving the way for, as we were saying in the introduction, a massive reset. So really, and you've talked a little bit about how you're going to approach the second half. And do you feel kind of excited about that? I do feel excited about it. I have a real, I
2: have, you know, I have a mountain to climb. I'm not yet divorced. The financials are still being worked out. The lawyer's letters are flying all over the place. The legal bills are piling up. You know, I'm in a rented house that makes me feel really nervous. It's, I lack a sense of stability and security. And I don't deal well with that. And it's also very easy to say when this is done and when that's done and when this is over, I will be fine because I will be fully you know, self-actualized and I will be able to get on with, I don't know, reading more books or doing a painting course or getting in more freelance work. But actually, you can put these obstacles in your way constantly. And I think part of the diagnosis has made me realize that the obstacles that I have put in my way has have been to do with a kind of uh, lack of self-worth and a, and a sort of um, feeling of like a flimsy foundation. So I'm working on building those foundations regardless of the fact that I'm living in a rented house, I don't feel stable, that my finances aren't in order. The next stage, I mean, it's really interesting when you go through something as traumatic as divorce and, you know, not being a full-time mum, which is a real, you know, head fuck, not being with my kid. I didn't become a mother not to be a mother full-time. When you go through something like that, you don't look at the future in these massive chunks. To get through what I've been through, I've been looking at the future in 15 minute into, you know, increments actually at some times. And now I look at it day by day. Today I'm gonna to do this. I don't think about tomorrow because I can't. And so I do know that there's a slow transformation happening. I don't know where it's taking me. I don't know how I'll feel tomorrow. I mean, some days I wake up and I can't get out of bed. So it's easier just to deal with the day as it is so today i'm talking to you and i'm going to start my telegraph column i'm going to therapy and i'm going to pick up my kids that's it that's all i can do whereas i think before the adhd diagnosis i would have said and i would have disappointed myself and brought on all sorts of feelings of guilt and shame today i'm going to get up at 5 a.m i'm going to write 2,000 words of my book proposal and then I'm going to do a weekly shop at nine o'clock and then I'm going to record a podcast and then I'm going to finish my telegraph column. To, you know, I have set unrealistic yeah. goals. And so really now a transformation period for me is
0: about getting through the day as best as I can. So you've bought yourself some air, really, haven't you? Yeah. Some air to breathe and grow and just, you know, and also, you know, it's the thing about hypervigilance is it, it robs you from the, of the ability to see what happens next just wait and see what happens next you have yeah. to somehow control what happens next and that's really first of all impossible and secondly exhausting yeah absolutely um so you've got you've got you've got these these projects personal and professional projects mm-hmm. the frenchman upstairs your book your children <laughs> um and and an interesting diagnosis which will now become like i suppose a wallpaper to your future absolutely. you know it's there and it can explain some things and then you take responsibility and you move on totally
2: completely there's only so long i mean i i don't you know there's only so long i can wallow and i don't wallow but there's only so many i felt like there's only so many times i can pick myself up well there isn't a choice because i have children and i have my you know i have a duty of care to them but i also have myself i have to keep picking myself up i cannot be defined by this diagnosis because it hasn't defined me so far but it allows like you say i kind of it provides a sort of ah okay right I get I understand now what I'm doing and I'm going to do things differently and I think it's a moment to check in with myself and think how can I do things differently how can I be a better friend how can I be a better mother and how can I be kinder to myself Mm.
0: it's that old adage isn't it do what you've always done and you'll get what you've always got so if you can give yourself permission to do things differently who knows what might happen and you know it's about the power of possibility I suppose yeah. And if we can believe in that, we can believe in ourselves, we can believe in anything. I think, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. I think a lot of people will really, really connect with what you said. I think it'll really resonate. Yeah. So thank you so much. And we, and we, and we wish you the best of luck. And I hope you'll come back when you've finished reading that book,
1: writing your book, and things have moved on and tell us oh, how yeah. things are going.
2: I will. And I will talk to you about
0: how I see dead people.
1: <laughs> oh my god and also I want to talk about your Manolos and that then we've got it all covered
0: dead people and Manolos
1: <laughs> that's it All right. dead see people you here. dating a Manolo
0: okay cool. <laughs> all right Stacey bye. thank you so much thanks thanks see so much you soon thanks for having me bye.
2: bye
0: you've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Mid-Alt our book I'm Absolutely Fine is out now if
1: you like what you hear please rate review and subscribe and we'll just leave you with this thought Worry is worshipping the problem.